a 500-year-old pub, Welsh tea cakes, and something called folded tofu skin. This week, we're talking to Christine Van Blockland, TV's Curious Traveler. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, and this is Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we travel the world and find unique dishes and drinks to sample, plus fun things to do in these places. And this week, it's TV's Curious Traveler, Christine Van Blockland. But before we talk to Christine, let me thank you for downloading and listening to this episode. And if you enjoy it, do me a favor and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever. The ratings really help, and I appreciate it. And if you could, if you're a fan of the show, tell a friend. Christine Van Blockland is the host and executive producer of the wonderful PBS program Curious Traveler. It's a very different kind of travel show that's a lot of fun and extremely interesting. And Christine and I have a wide-ranging talk. It goes from Wales to Italy to all over Asia and we have a great time talking about things like a lemon rind salad and the highlight has to be when I get Christine to agree to one of my crackpot theories about food. Destination, eat, drink. Christine, we're talking to you in the middle of this pandemic, and you are in the epicenter of it in New York City. How are you holding out? am fine. Um, I would never dream of complaining about my first world problems here, um, but I'm definitely witnessing it. Um, my personal experience of it is, so I'm here in Manhattan. Fortunately, throughout this whole thing, um, Central Park has been open, you know, with certain restrictions. I've been wearing a mask. You keep the six-foot distance, and, you know, none of us ever thought that any of this would happen, and it, it took... It's so strange, I, you know, and I, I need to go down there and take a picture of it. There are these huge signs in the middle of Central Park that say, stay this far apart. Um, you know, and you see moms with their masks and their little baby carriages and people running and biking. It's all very surreal. Um, you know, but again, I'm, I'm thankful for my personal experience. It's nothing compared to what other people are going through. So let's talk about happy stuff, fun stuff. Yeah, let's do. <laughs> During this pandemic... It's, it's difficult to sometimes take your mind off of the everyday barrage of the news, but travel is one of those ways that we can do that. So I'm spending a lot of time, you know, researching where I'm going to go when this thing finally passes and watching a lot of uh, TV shows. And I just wrote an article about my 10 favorite movies that are set in Sicily. Oh, so we great. can, you know, watch these movies and think about these things. So let's talk about uh, your show, which I love, Curious Traveler. Season four just came out on PBS, just started airing on PBS. But for folks who maybe haven't seen your show, Curious Traveler, how would you describe the idea behind the show? Curious Traveler, I always say it's like a field trip for grown-ups who have never quite grown up. <laughs> and what I it, what I mean by that, not so much, hey, we're immature, it's more 
if you remember when you're a child, all you do is you say, but why, but why, but why, how come? And I feel like as grown-ups, no matter what field we go into, we sort of lose some of that childlike wonder, that childlike curiosity. And being a journalist, and you know this as well, you know, it's always uh, you in every story, you ask and answer the who, what, where, why, when, and how. And that's sort of a jumping off point for Cherise Traveler. And then we started going a little deeper with it where, you know, anybody who wants to call themselves a traveler or an international traveler, they say, hey, I've gone to Rome, I've gone to Paris, I've gone to London. But unfortunately, people go and they have a wonderful time, but, you know, they, they snap a selfie in front of the Eiffel Tower, but never bother to find out the curiosity behind the Eiffel Tower, you know, which it's shocking to me that a lot of people don't even know that it was built as the entrance to the World Expo in, you know, 1889, Paris World <laughs> Expo. Right. It was meant to be a temporary exhibit mm-hmm. and was supposed to be torn down after 20 years. And, you know, we say, torn down, that's crazy. Um, you know, and then it had a certain role during World War II, all this great information. And I feel like even if you think you're the type of traveler that just likes to go and have really great food, which believe me, I do, or a really great wine or a really great luxury hotel, if you just do a little bit of homework ahead of time or even just follow what we've laid out for you in our show, your experience will be enriched so much more. Um, And that's really the whole purpose and the idea behind our show. That's what I love about it, because I agree with you wholeheartedly, Christine. It's like when you know the story behind it, it is a much richer experience. And I kind of feel like uh, a kindred spirit because I ask that same why, well, mostly the why question. I ask the why question all the time because I'm food focused and it's like, why are Portuguese donuts so popular in Hawaii? Why are all these sherry bodegas in Spain have English names to them? You know, why, why? I spend a lot of time trying to, trying to figure this stuff out. So when I watch your show, I feel like, oh, she's answering a lot of these same questions that I like to ask when I travel. And let's, let's, let's talk about some of the places because in the new season, you do an episode on Belgium and Belgium is a place um, I have not been to, unfortunately. And I and it's a shame because I've got relatives who are from Belgium, grew up in Belgium. My aunt and uncle uh, got married in Belgium. My parents were at the wedding and I've never been to Belgium. So tell me some curious stuff about Belgium. Well, and it's funny you say that. And I hear that all the time, too, that for some reason, maybe people are doing kind of bopping around all of Europe and they skip Belgium. And I say, why? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would say Belgium, in, at least in the main cities, um, which Brussels and Bruges and Ghent, it's kind of a similar feel to Amsterdam. And the, the quick, the short history to it, very short, is the northern region of Belgium is known as Flanders which sometimes I feel like, um, and then the and then the southern region is Wallonia. Then Flanders is primarily Flemish, which I know I'm oversimplifying it by saying Flemish is a form of Dutch. It's not really a form of Dutch, but that's kind of the quick way to remember it. And Wallonia uh, would be more of the French region. And why is it like that? There's a curious traveler question, why? <laughs> um, well, that's a long history of who owned, you know, it, it's all part of the... Um, the, the low countries and who ruled over which region and this, that. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, Italy is an example. Italy didn't even exist as a country that we know it today, you know, until the 1800s. So this is the same for in Belgium. So these, 
these somewhat arbitrary lines that are around this country didn't right, need to right. be that way. So we've got northern Flemish, um, southern Wallonia, and because of that, that's why you'll have these different foods in these different regions. In Belgium, you know, the first thing that pops into my mind is Belgian chocolate. Is yeah. is there a reason why the Belgians are so in love with chocolate? And is there a history there? Yes, uh, there's a wonderful history, but as with all history, some of it is legend, some is not. Um, so I'm all, <laughs> hey, I, I, don't, I don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, I always say, Christine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the facts that we do know is that the history goes back uh, to the 17th century when that region um, of Belgium was ruled by Spain. And so some of Spain's colonies, whether they were in Africa or in the New World, as we call it, um, that's where they got the cocoa from. But, you know, cocoa was being imported into lots of different regions of Europe. So the thing that seriously put Belgium on the map happened in Brussels, where, and this part is part legend, I choose to believe it because I think there's enough <laughs> evidence there, is that these local pharmacies, uh, pharmacists, were trying to make the medicine more palatable. So they would mm. coat it with chocolate. That would work. It, it, wouldn't that, isn't that wonderful? I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's Mary Poppins, you know, centuries <laughs> before. Um, and so that's the, that's the idea of it, is that's where it first happened. And that's also explained, if you believe the legend, um, but that's why these really wonderful, old-fashioned uh, chocolate shops look like pharmacies. You know, oh. yeah, it's got that really beautiful sort of uh, the the case when you come in. So it's a little wooden, it's got this glass case, and it's got those great shelves behind there, too. Um, now it's just filled with, you know, beautiful chocolates and not so much the awful medicine nobody wants to take. Um, so that's one thing. One, another part we do know is that uh, there's an 1884 law that requires a minimum of 35% cocoa in the chocolate. And the one big thing, and I know you've experienced this, and once you've tasted real Belgian chocolate, um, if they don't add all of that vegetable oil filler, where whether it's coconut oil or mm -hmm. just you know, corn oil, and it is such a difference. Uh, and you go, oh, that's what chocolate's supposed to taste like. <laughs> and it really it really is a difference. Um, and then there's lots of other um, long history, uh, which we go into into the show, um, talking about who invented it. And some of those shops are still there and where to go. Um, even the chocolate box uh, was invented there, called a valotin. Um, used to be chocolate served in a cone, not like an ice cream cone, but like a larger paper cone. Um, and then somebody decided to make a belleton. And, you know, think about what you give your mother for Mother's Day or your sweetheart for Valentine's Day. It's right, that right. nice box with a big bow around it. And that was all invented there. And is there a shop that you could mention the name of, uh, a favorite place? Yes. Um, we went to uh, Cornet Port Royale. And my French is atrocious, so please <laughs> forgive me. Um, and that's in the heart of Brussels. Um, and that one started in 1932, and it's inside the Royal Galleries, which are amazing. Um, and here I'm going to go on one of my, my tangents. Good, good. <laughs> gallery, whether you're in France um, or in Belgium or other places, a gallery with one L, if you're being French, and an arcade is not the same as a shopping mall. That's a four-letter word I won't want any part of. So these arcades and these galleries um, came out of something completely different, and they're historic, and they're wonderful, and they're fantastic. <laughs> so I 
idea of an arcade was um, basically an old alleyway, and you had shops on either side, right. but their, the fronts of their shop were facing the street. And then they thought, well, why don't we just, you know, put a beautiful, in the case of Paris, a glass uh, ceiling over this, and we're going to open up our back doors, where normally we're just sort of taking out the garbage, and we'll use that, and that way it's a covered area whether to cover from rain, and we'll make it very elegant. And, I mean, we've been, that tradition carry on to Wales. We filmed recently in Wales, and they're known for their arcades in Cardiff. Um, same type of thing. So this one is the Royal Gallery, which lives up to its name. You feel like you're inside a museum, and the ceilings are so high, and there's these Greek statues there and white marble. It's an elegant experience. It is nothing like going to a shopping mall. I love the arcades in in Europe, and I, I you know I grew up in the seventies and eighties, so arcade had a different meaning for me when I was growing Video up. Arcade. You know, Space Invaders and right, <laughs> and that right. stuff. And then uh, I I moved to Rhode Island, and they have I think I'll have to check the facts on this, but I think they have the the oldest uh, arcade in the United States in Providence, and it's um, it's yeah, and it's been there forever, and it's gone through several different phases and whatnot. But uh, yeah, look for the arcade when when you're traveling in Europe. Um, so we Brussels, we did. What about uh, Bruges in Belgium, and the cafe Bruges? that you went to? Oh, it's fantastic. First of all, I love any place where you can ride a bike and walk and never have to get in a car. And pedestrians rule. <laughs> and there's, you know, it's, we have the right of way as a pedestrian. And, um, and I think those, those cobblestone streets are a bit tough uh, for biking, but, you know, everybody bikes, so you just do it. So the, so this particular cafe we visited, um, they, they, that it's, so funny. Even on their website, on their sign out front, they say probably air quotes <laughs> the oldest pub in Bruges. Fifteen fifteen <laughs> is the date wow. they go with. Isn't that amazing? Um, Over five hundred years. Isn't that yeah? And you walk in, um, and you honestly, if you as with everything in Europe, it's. I swear the steps are in some kind of wonky system I will never quite understand. It's kind of you go up three steps one way and then down four steps and up mm. six. And it all goes through. And you come into this gorgeous room with the high ceilings. And it's got that dark wood paneling. It's got a little bar there. And they have this porcelain beer cap. And then around oh. you, it's, it's amazing. And the, and the long wooden tables, and you sit and you kind of swish down into these leather-covered chairs with those little brass studs on it. And you're kind of looking up, and it's got, uh, what can I remember? Oh, it has the, a picture of a swan, which is a symbol of Bruges. And it's got the owners there who, legend says, lived past the age of 100, hmm. which I love. Um, an old fireplace, and it's funny because uh, when we were there, uh, we were having a production meeting, and someone was talking to me. I don't think I paid attention to anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking around; it was fabulous. Um, and and then when you it, it had to go to the loo, as we say, um, you go outside this, the beautiful cafe area into a garden, and the garden actually used to be a farm, and before that it was a duck pond, and then before that it was a, a bowls court, not bowling as we know it, you know, but bowls, the European bowls. And it's just this beautiful little oasis, and I, we would never have found it unless somebody had taken us there. And it was just, it feels like this little hideaway, it's in a little alley, and you can't beat 1515. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a bit of heritage there. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I love that description. It feels like I'm I'm there right now. So 
if I'm in this cafe, the Belgians are known for their beer. Is is that what I would have? Is have a beer there? You would definitely have beer, a beer there. And you know how normally a wine list is about you know seventeen pages long. Their beer list is just as long. Um, oh, and great. you take your time. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, and you you look through all that. Um, the menu is great as well. And even though I mentioned. You know, so Bruges is in the northern half of Belgium, which means it's within Flanders, which typically is a Dutch tradition, which it does. Uh, but they also have a lot of French food to have there as well. And, and, you know, the typical French lunch food would be either, you know, salads and cheese boards. And they have the croque monsieur, croque madame, um, which are fantastic. And your listeners probably know that that's uh, it's basically a ham and cheese, a fancy, a fancy ham and cheese. Um, but, but if it's a croque madame, it's got the egg on top, which means woman's hat which is hilarious. Uh, isn't that funny? I always thought that was so funny. I was like, oh, it's close my dumb. Um, it, it's just, it was just lovely. And and I always think, at least for me, it's not so much the food, although the food is fantastic. It's more the experience. And I just wanted right. to hang out in there. I really did. And you gave out over that garden I was talking about. I was like, gosh, I'll just hang out here. And then, and I, I think it's the law that you have to have at least one bike with a um, little straw basket attached to it just parked out front and and maybe Every some time. flower some flowers in the basket and, <laughs> maybe some flowers in the basket I, it's all they're all it's always there it's just, you know you talk about the atmosphere christine and this is something that i've i've touched on in the podcast before but it's like People will come back. I, I used to hear this um, from people who came back from Italy the first time, and they would always say, oh, the gelato tastes so much better. In, the gelato is so much better in Italy. And, you know, in some cases it is. Italy makes fantastic gelato. But there are Americans who make great gelato, too. And I have this crackpot theory, which is my same crackpot theory as to why the Guinness tastes better in Ireland than it does in the U.S., and that's because you're in Italy when you're eating the gelato. You're walking down the street. You have a passeggiata. There's a couple with their child pushing them in a stroller. There's teenagers that are flirting with each other. The old men are sitting on the bench that they've been on, and you're eating your gelato, and the sun is going down, and everything is perfect, and the gelato tastes perfect because of that. And You are I, 100% correct. <laughs> okay, and so this is, this is my crackpot theory, but I got you to agree with me, so that's that's all I really needed to do. Um, no, absolutely, absolutely, I agree. So you mentioned Wales. Let's let's touch on Wales a little bit because this is another place. I'm embarrassed to say I've never been. I've been to the UK plenty of times. Been to England. Love Scotland and all the character there. And I've never been to Wales. My only point of reference to Wales is Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you know they. <laughs> They wrote some songs in a cottage in Wales. So educate me on Wales, Christine. Wales is, I say, it's this hidden gem. Um, and, and you're not alone. Uh, for some reason, um, Wales gets left off of people's list. Uh, and I say if you're, you know, I would say out of the entire UK, most people go to London. That's pretty typical. Just take the train. Just go out to Wales. It's, it's the smallest of the countries there in the UK. It, the natural beauty is astounding. They have uh, three different national parks. One happens to be a coastal one. Um, the other two more inland. And it, it, it's amazing. Um, we filled all throughout the northern area, uh, I think in 2014, and then just this last year went and covered the southern part of it, which included Cardiff. Um, and, again, I'm going to jump right to the food because the food is fantastic. Um, yes. So, 
<laughs> one of the things that, that Wales is known for food-wise, um, they have these great uh, Snowdonia cheeses. And Snowdonia is a mountain and a region in the northern part of Wales. We were, uh, they're known for their castles, for sure. So anybody visiting, I say um, just castles and cheese and you're covered. You're good. Just get those two things. Awesome. <laughs> you're going to have a wonderful time. Um, and to get some of those cheeses um, and the tea cakes I'm about to talk about, you want to go to these tea houses. Um, obviously, anything British is all about afternoon tea. Wales has their own spin on it. And these little Welsh tea cakes you can get are fantastic. So I say think of a, a Welsh tea cake is about the size of the, uh, as the palm of your hand. It's in the consistency. It's made on the griddle like a pancake. So it's sort of halfway between a shortbread and a pancake. And you'll see them made, and the idea was they were made on the griddle because the tradition was, um, as with all wonderful foods, um, it was sort of the food of the poor man or the poor family, where they couldn't afford an actual oven to bake cakes in, but everybody had a griddle of some sort, so um, or a hot, you know, kind of a hot plate sort of thing. So they pour the batter on there, and these little, oh my gosh, they're so good. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's sweet, but it's lightly sweet. And the idea is, and you can put things in it like sultanas, um, kind of which kind of like raisins, and then just the tiniest dusting of sugar. And apparently, it's considered sacrilege to put anything else on it. But you can find them with different jams or Nutella, but you don't need it. And I have to tell a quick story about my my uh, my heavenly experience with a Welsh tea cake. Please. We've been fil- we've been filming all day. And I would never complain because I love the cold. I love the nature and the fresh air. So we're like on top of these mountains and just about anywhere you go in this particular region in the north of Wales, it's that Irish sea, got that wind blowing on you. And it was fantastic. Trust me, it was fantastic. But we got to a point, it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're freezing. We've had the wind beating on us all day. And we were scheduled to film at this wonderful place called Nantequifern. Nantwithern, I practice saying that, where it's a Welsh language center. <laughs> and so as we were getting there, they couldn't have been nicer. The Welsh people are the nicest people on earth. And they said, oh, darling, if you look like you're a bit, a bit chilly, let's warm you up first before we do this. And I said, oh, yes, yes to that question. So they sit in their little tea shop. And I'm not even a lover of tea. You know, I'm more the American version of tea, which is iced tea. They had this hot tea and these darling little Welsh tea cakes, hot off the griddle with real butter. And when I say real butter, and they come in these darling little yellow uh, printed packets and the symbol of Wales and it's on their flag. It's the red dragon. It has that red dragon on it. And just because we've been out a cold day, we came in there and there was music playing and there was a fireplace. I was getting tears in my eyes. I'm like, this is the best tea cake oh, I've ever man. had. And they're wonderful. And I don't want to call it a biscuit. Um, you know, it's an American biscuit, but I, I think honestly, the best way to describe it is the it's it's a cross between, you know, you know, a shortbread. It's sort of flaky because it's so packed full of butter, but it's dense. Yes. And then a pancake is fluffier. Kind of marry those two together and have it with the hot tea. Even if you don't think you like hot tea, I loved it that day. And with that little sprinkle of sugar, it is divine. Absolutely divine. And what did you find as far as the? Uh... Welsh language goes. I mean, everyone's <laughs> got to speak English, but is is Welsh spoken widely in places where you were visiting? Yeah, well, that was actually the focus um, of one of our segments, and it's still been okay. one of my favorites to this day. So you think of 
England or the United Kingdom or Great Britain, which people get confused, but that's a story for another day. It's English. It's, of course, they speak English. And, oh, I've heard of the Scottish accent. I know what an Irish accent is. I've sort of heard of Gaelic. Nobody, I think, for the most part, has ever even heard of or realizes that Welsh is a completely different language. Now, it is a Celtic language, much like, a, you know, Scottish, Gaelic, or, or Irish, but it's a Brythonic language. And the reason why, and it's really just isolated to one small section, really in northern Wales. Um, now, when you travel to Wales, here's what's interesting. Um, it's a law there that all the street signs are in Welsh first and English second. Okay. But it's a, it's a joke. Not, not a you know, joke is maybe not the right word. It, it's known that most people in Wales don't speak Welsh other than up in this northern section where um, I'm going to get the percentages wrong, so I, I won't even say it, but it's, it's concentrated in one small area, but the Welsh government is doing a lot, especially now, to keep the Welsh language alive because that it is such a big part of their identity. It's very hard to learn. So I can, I can warn you right now because I took a lesson. Very I, hard. Yeah, because I've seen the street signs on TV shows oh, and whatnot. Good. I'm like, there is no way that's real. You know, it's like all these consonant, you know, these letters just strung together. And it just, it seems impossible to try and learn that. There's no vowels, I've decided. It's all consonants. Everything is 32 characters long. Um, <laughs> I I did, I, I'm going to butcher it, but just for fun, um, it, the longest place name in, in Britain is in Wales, and it's basically a train stop, and it's known as, okay, I'm going to try to say it, I'm going to mess it up, but just for fun. <laughs> and that's one word. It, yeah, it's. It's one word. It's one word. And it actually translates to, I'm going to get this wrong as well, um, it, it's a, it's direction. It's how to get somewhere. It's the church <laughs> by the swirling pool, by the red something. And again, I apologize. But isn't that fantastic? I mean, I just love it. I feel like it's a little fairy tale place. And all of Wales, again, we, we filmed over most of it. It, it. You get one of two things. This gorgeous natural scenery, whether it's mountains or plains where you see all the sheep, or you've got these gorgeous coastal uh, countryside, uh, or you've got these little tiny castle and stone cottage village towns with one tiny church um, and a little tea shop where they're serving you wonderful Welsh tea cakes. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> I know Lord of the Rings was filmed in New Zealand, but when I see whales on television, I see these pictures, I think... I'm just expecting a hobbit to come running out from one of these Absolutely. little stone, you know, it it looks like it looks like Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or something. It really does. It absolutely does. Um, and I think a handful of Gretel houses everywhere you right. look. I said, oh, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. So another place I want to talk about, because I just found this so intriguing, is Hong Kong and a dish there that's called folded tofu skin. And I, maybe I know what that is, but I don't think I do. Why, why don't you describe that, Christine? It sounds so crazy. Um, now, I'm, I'm a big fan of tofu anyway. Me too. Um, but tofu gets a bad rap, I think. It does get a bad rap. Uh, you know, and I always, um, I'm trying to be, you know, a vegetarian pusher on people. And I say, it just, it, it's like chicken. It's like chicken, except it's better. <laughs> um it takes on the flavor of whatever you put on there. Um, so when we filmed there, we filmed inside um, 
a Kung Wo Tofu Factory. Now, it's actually uh, a little tofu shop. I say, and it's tiny, tiny, wonderful. It looks like a little mini 1950s American diner, uh, you know, with kind of the, the white floors and the white, you know, the bright, you know, neon. It's fantastic. So we, they let us go into their uh, kitchen um, and film how the tofu is made. And I never would have known this. And I'm sure, you know, the ones that we have here in the U.S. have just been a big factory. But, you know, this is sort of the real thing done by hand. Giant wooden barrels, um, I would say shorter than a wine barrel and about three times as wide as a typical wine barrel. Okay. Um, but they're wood, yeah, wooden. And they have a special... Um, little spinner that kind of takes all the, the liquid out and they grind it down and they pour it into these barrels. And then basically I would say it ages the same way a wine would. And then um, when it gets cooked, there's two ways to get the skin. One is it's kind of the skin that forms on top. Like you would think a pudding would do that. I was and just going to say, yeah. Yeah. And it peeled off where the other way is once they've taken all the liquid out of that the giant barrel to then put it into the square forms and all this other sort of thing, there's sort of um, a lining around the inside of the barrel. Now, I know this doesn't sound good. <laughs> it sounds kind of weird. Like, why would that be good? I don't know why it's good, but I think it's because it's more of a concentrated flavor that's in it. So then they take that and it's dried. And here's where it gets really funny. So when you're in the markets there, the outdoor um, produce markets in Hong Kong, you'll see these plastic bags that are kind of hanging from um, the little tops of the stalls. And it looks like it would be a cotton candy bag. And you're like, what in the heck is that? And that's the dried folded tofu skin. Oh, okay. And it's amazing. And now you don't want to eat it straight like that. It's not like pork rinds or potato chips or anything. But you take it and then you cook it. So it's almost like you're sort of reconstituting it, like you're rehydrating it. And then you can, you know, when, when we had it in a restaurant, it, it was sort of folded to look like a lasagna. And it's got different, whatever, different, you know, flavors and marinades you want to put on it. And it is delicious. I know it sounds like such a weird thing, but it, it's a different flavor than the regular sort of square tofu you would buy at the grocery store here. And it was just so good and so surprising. Um, and I remember our guide that was with us, he was laughing. He's like, yeah, Americans don't know what this is. This is just so normal to us. And it was, <laughs> it was, it was, so, it was so, so neat. I really I loved that experience. So I thought I, I had never forgotten that. That was so cool. Oh, you know, Christine, we should probably say before you go, uh, before we talk about this, is that um, for people who don't know actually what tofu is made of, it's it, I think most people do know, but I'm just going to throw it in there that it's, you know, processed and fermented soybeans. That's that's what it's yeah, made out of. Exactly. And that's why I tell people, don't be scared. You know, it's just beans. Um, it just goes through an interesting process um, to, to get it into that, that sort of wiggly jiggly uh, form that we're used to. <laughs> right. So the other thing I'm just going to stick with the tofu because I was I was really kind of fascinated all the different ways that, that people could eat it. So again, if you're thinking of it as, and I don't like to, to think of it like this, but sometimes, you know, as a dairy substitute. So they make a, a sort of a tofu dessert, and I think it's just simply called tofu pudding, and this is at that same shop. It's like this wiggly little bowl, almost like an ice cream consistency, and they have on the tables there, where we would normally see ketchup and salt and pepper, this beautiful little white bowl with this bright orange coarse sugar. 
and I forget why it's orange, and I apologize. I'll find it out later. Uh, you just sprinkle that on top, and they say that's just the most popular thing that they sell there. And it's in the um, Sham Shui neighborhood, which has all these great markets. So the same way here in America, we would get an ice cream cone and kind of wander around. They would get a little bowl full of this that you would sugar, and that's kind of their little ice cream. And it's, it was fantastic. And, you know, sort of opens your mind to different things where you're like, oh, well, of course. Why, why wouldn't I do that? Simple and delicious. Uh, do you happen to remember the name of that shop? Yes. It is the Kung Wo Tofu Factory. Ha, perfect. Okay. So when we're in Hong Kong, that's the place to go. So we've, we've talked about a few places where I haven't been. Let's talk about my favorite place to travel to, which is Italy. You've been to Italy a lot of times too. Um, yep. Talk about uh, something uh, that you discovered called lemon rind salad. This blew my mind. Now, probably like most people, and I'm assuming yourself, if you had to choose one type of cuisine and that's the only type you could have the rest of your life, you have to pick Italian because there's so many different regions and so many different yes. things, and you could honestly survive on pizza the rest of your life and be fine, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, one thing I had never heard of, um, we were filming in Taormina, and we went to this restaurant. And, in Sicily. And, I'm, and I know you know this, so Mount Etna. Um, the largest active volcano in Europe, as we were told, and then jokes, no, don't worry, it's not going to erupt today, we'll be fine. Um, but the volcanic ash from it makes the soil so rich in minerals that what grows there has a different taste to it. And there's a certain type of lemon, and I think it was called, and I re-listened to the interview to try to understand, but I think it was named after the person who sort of created this type of lemon. Um, and that person was Giordano Intervenato. So I think the lemon is called an Intervenato lemon. Apologies if I got it wrong. But it's a giant lemon, organic, which is an important part of the next <laughs> part of the story, the size of your hand, and it's got all that wonderful bumpiness on the outside of it. So here's what's crazy. Because of the type of lemon that it is and has been bred to become, it's not really acidic. So this particular chef at this restaurant we went makes a lemon rind salad. So literally, you think normally when you make anything with lemon, you're either squeezing the juice or maybe you would kind of grate the rind to put into a recipe. He just slices it and you're eating it the same way you would eat an apple. You just eat the rind and the lemon, everything together. He just puts a little bit of olive oil that, of course, is produced in the region, maybe a little bit of oregano, and that's it. And you're sitting there going, I cannot believe I'm eating a lemon rice. And it's sweet, not sugary sweet, but sweet, not a bit of bitterness. And it's funny, and I know the chef loves watching people do this. Normally, if you think of biting into a lemon, you prepare yourself for that. Right, for the face, face. <laughs> the lemon face. <laughs> You prepare yourself, and you buy it, and go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. Um, the consistency is exactly the same as you would imagine. For a little, It is just delicious. Uh, and I've been blown away by that, and this was years ago. I had not even thought of attempting that here um, in the U.S. anywhere, because I honestly believe it has to be that type of lemon in that region. Right. Sicily is so known for its wonderful citrus. You've got these perfect lemons, and when we were there for a month— a few years ago, we were there in the middle of the winter, and citrus, the blood oranges were coming in. And it was just every morning going down to the market, getting the blood oranges, squeezing them fresh in our kitchen, 
And it was just perfection every morning in Sicily. Love it. Um, what about uh, what about coffee? What about espresso? You talk about espresso bars in, in Rome. I am an espresso junkie. I have no problem admitting that. Um, and we, we make a joke about it, our entire crew. We couldn't survive unless we had espresso at uh, 3 in the afternoon every day while we're filming. Um, so in Rome, they're everywhere. Um, you know, So I'm not going to pick one over another. Um, we did go quite a bit just because of where we were filming. And um, it's in the Piazza di Pietra which is near Trevi Fountain, also by the Temple of Hadrian, Pantheon, that whole area there. But again, I mean, you, you can't, you know, you look left, right, up, or down, you're going to find an espresso spot. This one is called, um, I'm going to get the pronunciation on, the Grand Café La Cafetiera. And I remember that because, being a curious traveler, I go, why is it a cafeteria? But that word doesn't actually mean cafe or cafeteria. It refers to the coffee maker. And it's a special type of, oh. um, yeah, and it's kind of neat. So I, you know, And then I went down the rabbit hole, as I always do, um, doing the research <laughs> on this. And it's a Kukuma coffee maker, which to me looks very similar to the manual espresso maker. Um, we all, we all probably have one in our kitchen, the kind that you actually put on top of the stovetop. So yes. it works in that same way, um, but this one is from Naples. Um, but anyway, so that's that particular place. I just love the coffee culture of it where, and this is, this is not a, a ding against a certain um, very popular coffee brand here in the U.S., but, <laughs> but when you go, when you're in Rome and you want an actual espresso or you want an actual macchiato, which just means stain, which means that's how much soy milk or regular milk you should have on it, just stained on the top. You just pop in there, you go up to the bar area, and they've got those beautiful bronze, you know, all the different things that they have there. And you just order a cafe and you get your espresso and you can stand there at the bar and you can have it there, um, and you kind of go on your way. I said, that's what an espresso is supposed to be. You're in a hurry. <laughs> you have it there. Um, or, as I say, the true macchiato, because I, I think a lot of times here in the U.S., people think a macchiato is a latte. I'm like, no, I didn't want milk. I don't want that. I want a little stain <laughs> of it. Just a stain. Right. And you go on your way. Or, and then the, the other side of it is, um, especially at this particular place, because it's on the Piazza de Pietra, is you, you can sit down there, have your coffee, take your time, and anywhere where the waiters have their ties and their vests on, and you've got Vespas and taxis speeding by, somehow they don't run over people, I'll never figure that one out, but that's part of the experience as well. Um, so whether you're doing the true espresso, you're standing there having it and going on your way, or if you're just sort of relaxing and watching the rest of Rome be hyper while you're sitting still, um, you know, it's an experience for sure. It's, yeah, it's the most wonderful custom in all of Italy. And here's another example. Why does the espresso taste so much better in Italy? Well, Absolutely. because because you're in Italy <laughs> and, you know, and they know how to make a darn good espresso too. It's so good. <laughs> well, Christine, it's been just great. I, f I feel like we could talk forever about all the places that you've been. Um, season four of Curious Traveler is showing right now on PBS. Everyone should watch this. Have, before I let you go, have you thought any about uh, season five? Yes. Um, so we had already filmed um, half of the season before the pandemic hit. Um, and so we're hoping, again, we know just the same information everybody else knows. We're hoping we will film the other half 
sometime soon. Um, we do know that what we can bring to our viewers is that we filmed in Innsbruck um, and Tyrol in Austria. We'll have another episode on Hong Kong. We went to Toronto, and I'm actually thinking about doing um, a curious mishmash where it's all these wonderful segments that we've filmed over the years that we haven't been able to include just for time purposes. Um, and so maybe we'll get to include, finally, the lemon rind salad uh, segment, <laughs> which I've been dying to show people. <laughs> curious Traveler bonus tracks and outtakes. Exactly, exactly. The director's cut. Yes. Oh, I love it. Looking forward to it. All right, Christine. Thank you so much for being on the program. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to see a season five. But for now, folks should definitely be checking out season four of Curious Traveler on PBS. Brent, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. There you have it. What could be better? Espresso, cake, and a side of a couple of crackpot theories, courtesy of yours truly. Thanks to Christine Van Blocklin for being on the show. And you can catch Curious Traveler on Amazon Prime or on your local PBS station. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, I'll be talking about dancing with Bare Feet's Michaela Malazzi. Michaela's got a great show on PBS as well, and we will talk to her about dancing in places like Italy, Uzbekistan, the Republic of Georgia, and, of course, food and drink in all of those places as well. That's next week on Destination Eat Drink. While you're waiting for that to drop, head on over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got tons of foodie travel guides for all over the world. If you're stuck on your couch, if you're working for home, if you need a break— Check out maybe Auckland, New Zealand. I was just looking at that the other day, remembering what a great place New Zealand is. So that's all at DestinationEatDrink.com. The podcast is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thank you, Ed. I am Brent Peterson. I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink. A presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.